Our pulpit guest is one of the most effective scholarly defenders of our faith in the 21st century. He's an apologist. He has a podcast, a radio broadcast. He's on television. Uh, he has covered every field of endeavor, but you may know him best as an author. If you have not read his biography of Luther or Bonhoeffer, shame on you. They are written in clear terms. There's humor, there's history. Also, when you read just these two books, you have a basic theological understanding of the ABCs of Christianity as a byproduct of the writing of this most gifted man. He's a graduate of Yale University, but he's overcome that. <laughs> he's now a senior fellow at King's College in New York. He is fun, he is alive, he is brilliant, he loves the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his heart and uses that erudition to inspire and to inform the world at this strategic time in history. We have adopted this man, and today I pronounce that Eric Metaxas is a true member of the family of the Second Baptist Church. Welcome. Hey, buddy. Have fun. You know, if you ever get to a point where someone like Ed Young gives you that kind of an introduction, you really, you want to slink away. You can only go downhill from that introduction. And I apologize in advance that I don't have the courage to slink away. And I will force you to endure what it is that I have to say this morning. Now, when I say what it is that I have to say, you better know that it is what Jesus has to say and not what any of us has to say. And for me to have the temerity uh, to write a book with the title, Letter to the American Church, you have to understand how humbling and frightening it is if the Lord asks you to say something. Because when the Lord speaks, you, you know you, you need to get out of the way. You need to make sure that by his grace, he is the one speaking. God forbid that you should add a syllable to what he wants to communicate. And I have never written a book like this new one, Letter to the American Church, where I, I just felt like I, I have a burden from the Lord that, that he, he wants me to speak this to his church. That's a, a holy burden and it's frightening and you should be frightened uh, when if the Lord asks you to, to do something or whatever, you say, Lord, I, I'm unworthy. And it's like, okay, now maybe I can use you if you know how unworthy you are. So I have to say, at least I think I know how unworthy I am uh, to say what I think the Lord wanted me to say uh, in this book and in this message. Now, some of you have heard uh, it attributed to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous quote, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. It, it seems pretty clear to me that 
either Bonhoeffer never said that or we, we can't track it down. So it's attributed to him because it sort of sums up everything about him. But we don't know who actually said it. Uh, if you want to quote it, uh, don't say, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You're free to say Eric Metaxas after that. <laughs> I'm going to take credit for that. Uh, I, coined that. I coined it. I coined a lot of things you probably don't know about. You've heard the term, pardon my French? I came up with that. <laughs> yeah, I came up with a lot of stuff. Um, but what could be more chilling than this idea? Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. The reason I say this is because if we in America think we're in any wise different from the German church of the 30s, we're fools. To believe that we're somehow different or better than the German church of the 30s is itself racist and tribalist. Why would we think that the Germans of that era were uniquely evil? I think a lot of times if you're really blessed, you forget that there's this thing called evil. People, by the way, have given their lives so that we could be free in America. You understand, this is not normal. To be free, that I can say whatever I like, that the Constitution, this government, allows me to be free. People have paid in blood so that we can have that. But most of us, not all of us, but most of us take that for granted. We think this is a normal state of affairs. Well, it's not a normal state of affairs. The world in which we live is a broken, sin-sick place. And as Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line between good and evil runs right directly through every human heart. That means your heart and my heart. Apart from the grace of Jesus, apart from what he did on the cross, we deserve eternal separation from God. But when you're so blessed that you live in a country like this or, or you get to go to a church like this, you might forget that you do not deserve it, that you are not worthy of it, and that when the Lord gives you the gift of faith in him and eternal salvation, that's You've just crossed the starting line. That's not the, that's, not the, that's not the tape. That's not the end. When God gives you the gift of faith in him, he says, okay, now let us together do what I have created you to do. But it is human nature always to forget about that and to kind of just want to go along to get along. So when I wrote my book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it had a very personal meaning for me. Why? Because my mother grew up in Germany during this period of the Nazis. Most of my relatives lived in Germany during that period. So I was not the kind of person who could say, oh, the Germans are uniquely evil that they allowed this to happen. I thought, no, as far as I know, the Germans that I know, they're uniquely wonderful. These are the most wonderful people I've ever known. How did this happen? What happened in that nation? That nation was a profoundly Christian nation. There's no question about that. 
So the question is, what happened to the church in Germany that they would allow satanic evil to worm its way in to the point that it was able to silence the church and crush the church and do things that none of us have seen in our lifetime. A level of evil that none of us, most of us, especially if you're not just blessed to live in America, but doubly blessed to live in Texas, you kind of, well, yes. You sometimes, you know, you might get the impression that, well, things aren't so bad or th things, are, things are better in the world. Whatever happened in Germany, that's like, you know, that might as well have been the Neolithic period or some other, some other bizarre period. That kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. But you know and I know that if you believe that, that's heresy. Original sin, uh, the, the, the idea that every one of us ought to go to hell, ought to be separated forever from God, has never changed in the history of the human race. It is only because of what Jesus did on the cross and our apprehending that and believing in that and entrusting ourselves to what he did on the cross, that's the only thing that prevents us from the deserved reality of eternal hell. Now, if you understand that, it makes you a little bit more grateful for Jesus's incredible suffering and tortured death on a Roman cross. But most of us are comfortable. Most of us don't think about that very much. Most of us don't think about any of this very much. And when I say most of us, I mean most of us, the church. And so oftentimes we are sucked along with the culture, especially if you're so blessed as to live in America and in Texas, you know that, hey, things, things are pretty good. And it's the lack of suffering and the lack of evil all around us that lulls us into a state of passivity and silence. So when Bonhoeffer said, or when whoever said, when, 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 when you think of this concept, silence in the face of evil is itself evil, you have to think to yourself, have I been silent? And where's the evil? Well, in Bonhoeffer's day, it was extremely clear. The evil was extremely clear. But not initially. Initially, most people thought, this will go away. It's not time to speak up yet. I'm going to let some other people fight that battle. I want to keep my job. I don't want my neighbors to look at me funny. So I'm going to do whatever I need to do. Well, that's our human nature. That is our broken, sinful nature. That nature spits in the face of Jesus. That is our nature. And we need every day to understand that the Lord requires of us to live in such a way, not that we believe in him, but that we love him with all our heart and soul and mind. When Jesus was asked, you know, oh, teacher, what's the greatest commandment, <laughs> right? Oh, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? I don't think that the man who asked that really was prepared for the answer, right? The answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's a commandment. 
So it's not like be a good person, believe, believe in me or believe or whatever. Love. Do you understand? You cannot love passively. You cannot love intellectually. Love passionately. God commands us to love him. And if you do not love him, he condemns you. That's chilling stuff, folks. He doesn't say, believe in me and do the right thing. He says, if you believe in me, you will obey my commandments. And the number one commandment, love me. Love is not an intellectual exercise. And in my book, I write about how do we get to a place where faith has become so attenuated that people say, well, what do you believe? And you say, well, I believe, uh, go to the Statement of Faith on my church's website and it says some stuff, that's what I believe. Oh, look at the Nicene Creed or the Bible, that's what I believe. Do you think the devil is fooled by what you say you believe? God sees what you believe by how you behave. And people say, whoa, whoa, no, 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 that's works righteousness. That's works righteousness. Folks, <laughs> you're not saved by what you do. But if you do not do things that make your friends and enemies say that person loves Jesus, then God and the devil and your friends and enemies know you do not love Jesus. This is not a message that I've heard much in the church over the years, that God says to us, it's not what you believe intellectually, because the devil knows that God exists. The devil believes in God. The devil's not stupid enough to be an atheist. We are commanded to love God, and God says, if you do not behave like you love me, you can't say, oh, but, but I believe. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I, the Lord says, I know you don't believe, hypocrite, because I see how you live your life. I see what you do when you think no one is looking. I see how you shut up to cover yourself when other people might speak up, but you say, I'm not gonna be one of those to speak up. I'm not gonna do that weird thing. I'm gonna keep my mouth shut. We are living at a time, folks, when the Lord in his mercy is allowing everything to go to hell at the speed of light to wake up his church. It is a blessing that Everything is as unspeakably bad as it is because there are tons of people finally thinking, oh, oh, maybe, maybe I need to speak up. Maybe I need to speak up on that issue or that issue or that issue or that issue. Can you imagine that in a country that effectively is, is Christian, we're not officially Christian, but effectively most people say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I believe in the Bible. Are we behaving that way? Because if you don't behave that way, it proves you don't. And if you're silent when everything is going downhill, God knows you're not trusting him. 
There are many churches where the pastors are not saying a lot of stuff because they're afraid to lose members of their congregation. And, and you know, do you know what happens when you behave that way? You lose numbers in your congregation. And if you're enough of a fool for Christ to speak up about the stuff that everybody says you better not talk about, your numbers go up. This is what happens over and over and over again. The churches that are still inviting me to speak, <laughs> those churches, their numbers, the story's the same everywhere I go. They go, oh man, the last two years, our numbers have exploded. And the other churches are withering. They're withering because like the fig tree, they have been cursed by Jesus. The Lord can be a very harsh judge. He is, by the way, whoever we want him to be. I wanna read the uh, parable of the talents because this kind of sums things up. If you know, um, most of you will be familiar with this, but in Matthew 25, 14, um, this is, of course, Jesus speaking. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents. Talents, as you know, are coins, okay? To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. He also traded with the talents. His master gives him the talents and he does stuff with them and he doubles his money, his master's money. But he who had received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of the servants came and settled accounts with them. So he comes back he who had received five talents came and brought the, the five other talents, so now he has 10. Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Now, how is he faithful? He was faithful because the Lord says to us, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. He loved his master in such a way that he said, I'm gonna take what you gave me and I'm gonna do exactly what I would do if it was my own. And what would I do? I know that I could probably turn these five talents into 10 and I'm gonna do it. Why? Because I love my master, I wanna bless him. He's given me this opportunity. I wanna do what I can. So, the master says, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who'd received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. Same thing, okay? Now you understand both of these servants who got the talents, the five and the two, what they did was a little risky, right? They could have lost them, but they weren't thinking about that. They were thinking, I love my Lord, I want to bless him. I'm going to do what I would do if it was my own money. 
and they did, and they got more money, but it involved a risk. So the Lord says to the one with the two talents, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. So he was given one talent and he says, I don't really like my master. I certainly don't love my master. In fact, I hate him. He's a bum. I don't like him very much. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take what he gave me. I'm gonna bury it. And when he comes back, I'm gonna be like, here you go. Here's what you gave me. I'm gonna play it safe. I don't like him. I'm gonna, I better play it safe. So he plays it safe. But the Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. The least you could have done is at least get some interest on it if you were afraid to gamble with it. And of course, not really gamble, right? But to, if you were afraid to, to try to do something with it, the least you could have done is this, but you didn't do that. So the Lord then says, take the talent from him, that one talent, and give it to the one who has 10. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, these are the words of Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. So let's think about what he's saying here. What he's saying is, you worship whom you worship. If you worship a gracious, loving God, then God is gracious and loving. But if you hate God and you say, I, I, I don't want to live my life for God, I don't want to love God, I just want to give him whatever he needs to get so I don't go to hell. I'm going to do the minimum. I don't like him very much. I don't believe he died for me and loves me and whatever it is, I'm just going to give him back what I think is necessary and that's it. In other words, I hate him. I don't like him. He's a harsh judge. He's not a loving father. So I'm just going to do what I need to do. Jesus makes it clear that if that's your attitude, you're in big trouble. If you're doing the minimum to stay out of hell, you are definitely going to hell. This is, this is an extraordinary parable. All, all the parables are extraordinary. They're the kind of thing that in all the history of the world, I was an English major at Yale. I mean, when you read literature, you do not come upon anything with the extreme depth of these parables. They're kind of frightening because you feel like it looks like God wrote these. This doesn't look like a human being could come up with this level of, of depth. But think of what he's saying here. He's saying if you play it safe, you're in big trouble. There is no way to play it safe. Either you love me 
and behave toward me as a lover who will do anything for the one he loves or you condemn yourself. So think of this idea. The guy who plays it safe thinks, I've got a, I've got a third option, I'm gonna play it safe. And the Lord says, there is no third option. The command is that you love me. If you do not love me, you condemn yourself. There is no, well, I believe in you. Some people are more religious and they kind of love God and they raise their hands and they get excited about God. But I, I, I believe, so I'm covered. The Lord says, if you think that's true, rest assured you are not covered. The church needs to hear this message that when we say we believe, the Lord says, I'll be the judge of whether you believe or not. You know, Luther kind of overdid this, right? Because we, we had so much works stuff going on in the high medieval church that he felt the need to stress, it's by faith, it's by faith, it's by faith. It is by faith. But just as Bonhoeffer writes about this thing called cheap grace, there's also cheap faith where you say, I believe, I believe. And the Lord says, yeah, you say you believe, but I know you don't. I know you don't. And I will judge you based on whether you believe or don't. So you might think you believe. You might say, Lord, Lord, but I'm telling you from your behavior, you do not behave like someone who loves me, who trusts me. Now the key to this passage for me, when I was writing the Bonhoeffer book, I thought this is a very similar thing. In Germany, this is the difference between religiosity and passionate love of Jesus, okay? Religiosity says, I'm gonna do the safe thing. Tell me what I need to do. I gotta tick the boxes, I gotta do whatever I gotta do. I'm covered, right? That's religiosity. That goes to hell. God says, I want your heart, I want your life. I wanna know that you love me and that you trust me. You trust me with your life. If you trust me with your life, you do not fear death because I defeated death on the cross. Now you say you believe that, do you believe that? If you have any fear of death, you prove you don't believe that. So you're already hellbound, so you should be afraid to die. If you believe I defeated death on the cross, which you claim, you will live your life as a free man, free to say whatever you think is true, free to do whatever you think is true with no fear because you fear God and you love God and you know you can't outgive God. So if you do what he calls you to do, you know he has your back. So Bonhoeffer went out on that limb, but most of the German church did not. Most of the German church said, uh, we don't think it's time to speak yet. We're gonna be quiet. We're gonna keep quiet. We're gonna let those hotheads fight the battle. We're gonna let them take the heat. We're gonna be respectable and the evil will pass us by. We'll be fine. Hitler's just gonna be a one-term Fuhrer. Not a problem. The pendulum swings back. I'm just gonna keep my job, my respectability. Well, I think of the example actually of Let's say the Gestapo comes to your door and says, are you hiding a Jew in your basement? And you say, well, the religious answer, I can't lie, so I'm gonna tell the truth. I'm gonna say, uh, yes, I'm hiding a Jew in my basement. Come get the Jew, torture and murder the Jew, and I'm justified before God. That's the religious answer. Do you think God does not condemn that? 
We have plenty of examples in scripture from Rahab and others of people who technically lied, but God doesn't see it as a lie, right? He sees somebody trying to honor him. And this gets into more complex stuff. I write about it in the book, but I mean, there's a time when God would say to you, no, you don't owe that Gestapo officer that truth. What's wrong with you? But to cover your religious rear end, you will say, oh, I don't want to tell a lie. Come and kill the Jew. God sees your heart. God sees your heart and God will judge you. But here's the key. The person who says, well, I don't want to make a mistake. I better not lie. Better not do this. Better not do that. That person, that religious view has a view of God that says, I don't like him. He's looking for me to make a mistake and then he wants to crush me. So I'm not gonna make any mistakes. I'm just gonna do what I need to do. Uh, when he gives me a talent, I'm gonna bury the talent. And when he comes back, I'm gonna be like, here's your talent back, leave me alone. You don't love God. If you know God loves you, you will go out on a limb for him to the point where even if you get it wrong, you say, but you know what? God's looking at my heart. God is a God of grace, he loves me. And if in my behavior, I love him, even if I get it wrong, I cast myself on the grace of the Lord because he is a good God. But if I don't think he's a good God, if I think he's a religious God, judging me in this way, in this way, I'm just gonna do the safe thing. I'm gonna bury that talent Bonhoeffer talked about something called religionless Christianity. In other words, he knew that Germany was full of religious people going to church, buying into this thin Lutheran idea of it's, it's by faith alone, intellectual. I just gotta say I believe these things, I'm justified. And Bonhoeffer says, well, no. You have to live your life as though you love the Lord and trust him with everything with your family, with your job, with your standing in society, that you put him first. If you live that way, you can never fail. Even if you go to the gallows as Bonhoeffer did, you win because you secretly know, oh yeah, Jesus defeated death on the cross. So even if you kill me, I don't die. If we don't live that way today, folks, we've come to a place in our culture now where the Lord has made it very clear. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. If you do not have the courage to speak truth now, which most of the church has not, you know that, we would never have gotten to this point, folks, where we say, I'm gonna look the other way, I'm gonna look the other way, I'm gonna look the other way, I'm gonna let somebody else take that heat. Some of those hotheads, we'll let them take the heat. If you let them take the heat and you keep silent and you play it safe, you're in tremendous danger. Your soul is in danger because what the Lord has commanded of you is that you love him. That whatever he has given you, whether it's five talents or two talents or a big job or a big family, you have influence in this world, the Lord has given it to you, and he says, what I have given to you, use it in such a way to bring glory to my name, 
and to show me that you love me. And if you don't, if you play it safe, I will know you don't love me and you stand condemned. It is a chilling thing. With God, you can't play it safe. You cannot play it safe. Either you abandon yourself to him and you say, I believe he is who he is and I trust him with my life or you don't. And the reason we are where we are in America today is exactly the reason that the German church ended up where it was. And so I wrote this book because I said, there is no doubt in my mind that everybody who thinks they would have done the right thing back then if they'd been in Germany is today not doing the right thing. And we are in the very place that the German church was in 1933. And it is a waking nightmare that this is true and that most of the church does not know this. If you are afraid to speak up against cultural Marxism, if you're afraid to speak up against critical race theory, if you're afraid to speak up against transgender madness, if you're afraid to speak up against any of these issues, I just want to tell you, if you're afraid to speak up about any of those and other issues, God is judging you and will judge you because the lives of millions depend on your behaving as though you are free and you only fear God. You do not fear what man is gonna say about you. You do not fear losing your job. You don't even fear using your life. You don't even fear going to jail because you're free. The Lord has made it as clear to us as he can that if you do not live in a full-throated way in every part of life. If you let somebody shut you up by saying, oh, that's political. Folks, that's a lie from the pit of hell, okay? If you believe that the unborn are human beings and you advocate for that as you better, people are gonna say, well, that's political. You can call it whatever you wanna call it. It's truth. And I am not gonna let you shut me up by saying, oh, you're being political. Do you not know that William Wilberforce was told to shut up? He said, I believe that the slave trade is satanic and I'm gonna speak up against it because of my faith in Jesus and what the scripture says. They said, yeah, you better shut up. You're being very political. You're bringing your faith into politics. Well, he didn't let them shut him up because he cared more about the Africans suffering the, the, the tortures of the damned than he did about what respectable people thought about him. He did the right thing because he feared God and loved God. If you do not live that way, folks, you stand condemned. And we are here now in the church in America because many of us have been silent in the face of evil. We've acted as though there's no such thing as evil. We will never have evil in America. Well, my mother and father in Germany and Greece, they saw hell on earth. They saw how bad things can get. Anybody who's lived in Cuba, anybody who lived in the former Soviet Union, most people around the world today, if you're a Uyghur Muslim living in China, you know satanic evil exists. And you know that you would rather live free and die for the truth than live like a slave by being silent in the face of evil. 
those of us today who call ourselves Christians, we're meant by the Lord Jesus to be on the offense. If we, by his grace, will use our voices and love him and act as though he loves us and died for us, we will see revival in America. We will see reformation in America. We will see the Lord's hand bless this nation in a way that we almost cannot believe today. But if we do not, we will see that we will reap what the German church reaped, which is hell on earth. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. The Lord is looking to his church now. I believe that the voice of Bonhoeffer, which was ignored by the German church, speaks to us today. And that the Lord in his infinite mercy is giving us a chance to heed the words of Bonhoeffer, the prophetic words of Bonhoeffer, that we could wake up where they remained asleep. But the Lord will not force us to wake up. But he's given us the words of Bonhoeffer and the story of Bonhoeffer in the German church for his purposes in our generation. We're called to be fools for Christ. There's nothing else more wonderful. When you know that he defeated death on the cross, literally, you have no fear, you are free. If you say you're some kind of Christian, you need to live that way. And this is not a threat. This is an invitation from the Lord of glory to be free, to rejoice in him, to be the men and women that he created us to be in our mother's wombs and that he died on a Roman cross for us to be today. Today. Abba Father, I ask you, Lord, to anoint these words in the ears and the minds and the hearts of those who've heard them today, that you would be mightily glorified and that you would save this nation and this world from the disaster that we deserve, that you would be glorified. Hallelujah, in Jesus' name. No one moving, no one stirring, please, just a moment.